Okay, um, so by faith, and, and again, we see this over and over and over through the passage, by faith, uh, and teaching us, you know, I think what the, the author of Hebrews is trying to do, uh, number one, is encourage. He's trying to encourage the group of people that he's writing to, to continue on in their faith. Uh, he's trying to teach them about their faith so they will be encouraged and they will continue. Uh, I think another thing he's doing is showing that people have always pleased God by faith. That even though the law was revealed to the people for their benefit and for right living, and so that through their right living they could be a revelation of the greatness of God to the rest of the world, but it only happened, people are only righteous, people are only commended by the same kind of faith that they had in Jesus Christ. It wasn't some weird shift where used to be you please God by the law and now you please him by faith. It's always been faith. It's only by faith that anybody could come to the law of God, something that was way beyond their ability to obey perfectly and say, I'm going to make this my standard. So it's always been by faith. Remind us again what we've talked about before. What is biblical faith? Well, it's believing what God has revealed in his word, considering that absolutely reliable truth. What does it mean to live by faith? Well, it, it means that you make conscious daily decisions, which are based firstly on what God has revealed in his word, rather than on your feelings or the world's reason or even your reason apart from scripture or the consensus of the unbelieving world in which we live. Right? We, we have to make decisions based on what God says. That is the firmest foundation of our faith because all of what we see was brought into creation or brought into, brought into being by the word of God. Um, uh, we do see Jesus reflected in the lives of these people. We do see the gospel preached. We do see the results of our faith expounded upon. Um, but rather than do that, today I thought we would go through just a little bit at a time and talk a little bit more about Abraham and Sarah and how the author of Hebrews uses the example of Abraham and Sarah uh, to, I believe what he's doing through these examples is showing how the heroes of faith are really just like them. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if a person in a New Testament church who'd grown up hearing stories about the giants of faith would think, okay, well, I'm not Abraham. I'm not Sarah. I'm not David. I'm not any of those people. I'm just me. I got an ordinary life. I got a job. I got a family. Um, I have things that I need to do every day. I'm not some giant like Abraham. I'm not some great woman like Sarah. But I think what he's trying to do here, and so what I want to try to do here, is show how Abraham and Sarah were a lot like us. They had less revelation, and, and Abraham had the good fortune of hearing God and seeing a, a, a theophany as an appearance of, of God in, in, in the form of one of the people who visited him, and he had visions and things like that. It's wonderful. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't know the big picture. So they are people just like us. So let's look at this a little bit at a time, just in, 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 in kind of line with that. So not forgetting that it is through faith that anyone can be commended as pleasing to God. That anyone will hear good and uh, well done, good and faithful servant. It's only because of faith. And so we see that by faith, Abraham, well, I, I wanted to split this up a little, so I underlined the action 
And then I left uh, unmarked the circumstances that were going on. I hope that'll make a little bit more sense as we talk through it. So by faith, Abraham, when he was called, when God called him to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, as his inheritance, and even though he didn't know where he was going. I think this is really remarkable. I think a lot of us can identify with this. Uh, Jay and I have talked about it before, that we read about Abraham's calling and thought about what if God would call us out of the place where we are, similar to the way he did Abraham, right? Not reading the text and thinking we're like Abraham, right? But understanding that, that God calls people, yes, in different ways, but when you examine the ways that God calls people and the way he uses people, after a while you start to see similarities, right? And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're making observations based on the life of Abraham and Sarah, based on the information we get from the word, and we're understanding how our faith is like theirs by seeing the similarities between our lives and our calling. So Abraham, he's called to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. Uh, what's so neat is that he actually was going to receive this area as an inheritance in his um, not in his lifetime, but in his own family, right? So uh, let's look at it this way. So in, in Genesis chapter 12, God says uh, to Abraham, who, by the way, we, we, we read in the text that Abraham's wealthy. He has something like 300 slaves, I think, that live in his house. It may be a little bit more than that. I think it was 300. But he has a whole bunch of people that he was responsible for. He has a whole bunch of people that he looks out for and cares for. He has all kinds of possession and, and wealth, and he has a place where he lives, where he's been, his family has been established for a long time. This guy has a successful life, a successful career, and all of a sudden, God says to him, I want you to leave all this, and I want you to go to a place I'm not going to show you just yet. He gives him a great promise. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, then, if you were to read, I'm not going to do it now, but if you were to read the next few chapters, you're going to see that Abraham is going from here to there in the promised land. He's building an altar here in this city, building an altar there. He's calling on the name of the Lord. You're you're not getting a ton of extra revelation from God. And God gives him a little bit more information, we, talk, we see that he talks about, in your seed will all the families on the earth be uh, blessed. So he gives him a little bit of refined information, but he doesn't give him a bunch of extra information, like, hey, I'd like you to go here for a minute, then I'd like you to go there for a minute. And we don't see that happening. We see that God is leading Abraham sort of behind the scenes, right? He's not giving him point-by-point directions, like something he printed off of uh, Google Maps back in the day before you could have real-time you know, turn-by-turn directions. It's not what he did for Abraham. He called him to go, even though he didn't have all the details. He didn't know exactly where he was going, and he had to leave his security behind. How did Abraham gain his wealth? Well, we don't know exactly. We don't know exactly how he gained his wealth, but it had to have been connected, connected with the society that he was in, right? You don't just make wealth appear. You have to gain it by trading and by... By maybe by planting, uh, but you can't gain it any other, other way than in cooperation with other people. So Abraham had to leave all that. 
He had to give up the right to self-determination for 75 years or however long he, he, he was able to make decisions after his father's passing. Abraham determined his own life. He made his own way. As far as we know, he didn't have any plans to go to Canaan. So Abraham had to give up self-determination. He had to give up security. And he had to do it without a bunch of information. He had a big promise that we know he wasn't going to see the fruition of beyond a few sons. Beyond Ishmael, beyond Isaac, and beyond a few sons from his other wife after the passing of Sarah. By faith, he made his home in a land. And he lived like a stranger. We'll get into more of this aspect of it, living as a foreigner in a place that you are set to inherit a little bit more in the next section um, in a couple of weeks. But the idea here is, is that Abraham had to trust in the promise of God beyond all of what his eyes told him. Can you imagine what it must have been like? So Abraham was roughly 75 years old when he goes to Canaan. And for 25 years, he's not only waiting for a son from his own body, from his wife, but he also doesn't have any of the land. I think the only piece of land that he ever got for himself was a little plot of land to bury his wife. But he didn't actually have all that land as a possession for himself in his lifetime. So every day, all of the circumstances of Abraham's life told him that the promise that he was living up to wasn't getting any closer. He lived in tents. He moved about from here to there. I wonder if the author of Hebrews gives us this because maybe back in, uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans, he had a house with a bunch of you know, permanent foundation buildings. Again, we don't know, but he makes a point to say he lived in tents, living like a sojourner, going from here to there. So Abraham, he risked all his wealth. He obeyed the command of God without knowing all the details. And in spite of that, day after day, he faced, facing a reality that, that, that really opposed the promises that he had received from God that opposed uh, the results of the faith that he had. And so, when I, it doesn't really surprise me that the author of Hebrews talks about Abraham in this way. Because remember that many of the Hebrews had experienced being kicked out of their homes, having their possessions taken away, having to give up their right to self-determination. The gospel demands that of you. You don't come to God and say, okay, well, I'm going to keep my plan and keep this and keep that, but also, can I have Jesus? That's not the way the gospel works. You give up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus made that point absolutely clear. Not only about familiar relationships, but for your life itself. So they would have understood, I think this early church, this early group of Hebrew believers, would have understood what the author is saying here. Hey, listen. Abraham got a promise, and he didn't see it coming to pass. He didn't see all the details. He walked around in a place where he was called, where he was said to inherit, but he didn't get it. Not in this life. He had to trust God day by day. He wasn't hearing step-by-step instructions from God every single day. He had to trust that God was leading as he pressed on trusting in that future promise. And that's exactly how this early church would have had to live their lives. 
being opposed by the people all around them, hearing refusals when they shared the gospel with others, receiving physical persecution, seeing that people that they knew had been killed for their faith, thrown into prison. And so they needed to see this, and so do we. We need to understand this as well. America has been in a time of prosperity for a long time, and the church has enjoyed a lot of prosperity here. But those of you who pay attention to the way the culture is going understand that this is not long. Why was Abraham able to do this? Because he kept his eyes on a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's not talking about Israel, the physical Israel that got destroyed and demolished and overrun many, many, many times. He's talking about the new Jerusalem. Uh, I think it's Revelation 21. I can't remember the verse now, but it talks about that city with so many foundations and it describes the foundations in in terms of, of jewels and precious stones and gold and silver. That's the city that Abraham was looking forward to. He was looking forward to that king. Jesus tells us that too. That he saw his day and he rejoiced that he could see his day. Because Abraham was looking forward to the new Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem, the one that's from above, not the one that's from the earth. And that's the exact same way that this early church would have needed to live their lives. Not keeping their eyes on a city that, that... unbeknownst to them, was getting ready to be destroyed. Remember we talked about the timeline of when Hebrews was written. Uh, Probably uh, within a good 15 years before uh, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, Probably a little bit before that. Because otherwise the author of Hebrews would have said, say, I told you that thing was going to pass away. Remember what happened? So, They were looking forward to a new Jerusalem. They needed to look forward to a new Jerusalem rather than being taken back to Jerusalem. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So with Sarah... um, What I found really cool about this was this is one of the few places where Sarah is really kind of held up. There are a few places where Sarah is held up as a great example. Um, You know, Galatians uses her as an example, but doesn't really talk about her behavior, uses her kind of allegorically. But uh, in in, um, 1 Peter, thank you. I, have, I think I have it on the slide. Well, I might not have a slide for it, but I have it in my notes. In 1 Peter, which we're going to look at here in a second, she is used as an example. And we'll talk about that in just a second when we get to the part about her considering God faithful. Um, but this ordinary, this ordinary woman who we don't hear a great deal about was able to be part of something phenomenal. Sarah was able to be part of the building of a nation that would have the word of God revealed and preserved through them. She's the mother of the nation. We talk about the patriarch Abraham. She's the matriarch, right? 
Sarah has this fantastic reputation as being obedient. We'll see, read that in 1 Peter. But Sarah, and when we look at the story in Genesis, she doesn't really look like she's all that great of a character, right? She doesn't. But I wanted to, to, you to think about this. I'm not going to go there now. I was, I was thinking about reading uh, in Genesis chapter 16 to look at Hagar and, and how Sarah deals with that whole situation. But Hagar, I'm sorry, uh, Sarah believed in the promise of God. She thought that she had to bring part of it to pass by herself. She thought that maybe it would be through Hagar and not through herself. So we could fault her for not fully understanding the plan, but God never explained the plan to her. Right? He didn't give her the full details, as far as we know in Scripture. But she believed in the promise. And because of that, she was able to hang on. And and, and chapter 16 shows that she believes in the promise, even if she doesn't understand it. She received power to bear children. Because she considered him faithful. Well, how did she consider him faithful? I do want to read uh, from 1 Peter because I think it's important that we understand how, uh, how, she, um, how she did this. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see, your be- when they, um, see the, your, your purity the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Now, Peter is telling women that they should, uh, they should make it their goal to be beautiful because of the way that they live. Their submission to their husbands, their obedience to God, their good works. That's where your beauty should come from. And then he uses uh, Sarah as an example. He says, Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped to verse 4. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. And then he uses Sarah as an example. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And then he says, husbands, in the same way, be considered, consider it as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So in a couple of ways here, Sarah is held up. One, she's held up in his example as submission to her husband and hope in God because he says, this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God. So Sarah trusted in the faithfulness of God and she showed it by her submission to her husband, by her hope in God, and by her obedience to her husband. So we don't see a ton about Sarah that necessarily is given in a favorable light in the Genesis account, but she continued on in the promise just like he did. And what's really neat about this is that ultimately what Sarah did was ordinary. When it came right down to it, she didn't have to accomplish this great thing. She didn't have to go off on her own. She didn't have to take her family off uh, as, as Abram did. She had just had to follow along and be faithful. But when it came down to having children, 
She just had to do the ordinary things of life that, every, that God had prescribed for all women to bear children. That's all she had to do. But through that and through the faithfulness of her life and her faithfulness to her husband, God brought forth the people that would reveal his glory to the world and his word to the world. And he brought forth eventually, through her, the Messiah who would redeem and restore creation and purify people for himself. She got to be part of a huge thing just by doing ordinary things. And I wanted us to see this because I do believe that the author of Hebrews wants us to see this, that God wants us to see this. Because a lot of times we look at Abraham's example and we think big terms. We think, oh, he left everything and he you didn't know where he was going and he ended up being this great patriarch. And sometimes we despise the little ordinary things. The daily, normal things that God has prescribed for us to be faithful followers of Jesus. That ordinary thing called prayer. Which is, by the way, an extraordinary gift that not everybody has the ability to do. That's only possible because of what Jesus did for you. But prayer, by reading the Word, by examining our lives in light of the Word, by looking at the Word and saying, oh man, that's sin and I'm doing it this way. And repenting. Ordinary acts, day after day, without God saying, okay, now do this. Okay, now do this. Okay, now do this. He's saying it all through the Word. We just need to listen. Um, I, I watched not too long ago a teaching from R.C. Sproul about the will of God. And I love the way he puts this. He says, you know, when people ask me about the will of God, usually what they mean is about the decorative will of God or the decretive will of God, meaning what's God going to do next, you know, so that I know. And he read Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, right? The secret things belong to the Lord but what belongs to us is all this revelation that he's just given us, his law, his words. That's what belongs to us and to our future generations. And so R.C. Sproul, in his kind of way he does or did, he says, so the secret things, the will of God that hasn't yet come to pass, well, it's none of your business because you'll know when it happens, right? And in a lot of ways, too, we have to have this mindset, right? This Should I take this job or this job? Well, examine it in Scripture. Can you be a faithful follower of Jesus and do both jobs? Well, then take which one you want more. It's not as if God's going to be like wringing his hands hoping that you pick this one because if you don't, everything's lost. His will is going to come to pass. We don't have all the information, but in the Word, we have all the tools. We have all all the building blocks of a life that honors God. All we need to do is submit ourselves to the ordinary daily task of reading his word, of praying about what we see revealed, of asking God to reveal it and give us the power to do it. And through those ordinary things, God is doing something extraordinary. A lot of extraordinary things. One, he's turning your sinful self into something beautiful that will have glory on the day of Christ Jesus. He's making your inner character more and more like Jesus every day. He's using you to reveal his glory to the world around you when you do something ordinary called proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to your neighbor, to your kids. God uses all these ordinary things, even though we don't have all the details, to bring us to himself and to reveal himself to the world. So Sarah got to be part of a huge story, an integral part of a huge story. 
And so do we, by faith and by doing the ordinary things of obedience that God has given us to do. This by ordinary means. But extraordinary power, right? That extraordinary power that came from God. She considered him faithful who had made the promise. Um, I've already read the passage from 1 Peter. I kind of switched there. Um, and then from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. I'm not going to go into great depths on this, but I hope you understand that when we see Abraham and Sarah and them as good as dead and old and they shouldn't have been able to have kids at that age anyway, even at that time, so we can't use the excuse of, you know, they live longer in those days. God did something amazing and he brought forth a people. But let me tell you something, there was another man who died through whom many descendants came. But he didn't stay dead, he he came back. And he has descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky and will shine like the stars in the sky one day. So I couldn't help but talk about how this, how this reminds us of Jesus, right? And so just thinking back through the passage um, uh, that, we were, that we're looking at here at Hebrews, thinking back through the passage, Jesus, he came to what really truly did belong to him, not would one day, John chapter 1 tells us that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. He came into a world that was created through him and they rejected him. So the one who really went into a place and had to live like an alien and a stranger and a wanderer in a tent, the one who ultimately did that was Jesus, not Abraham. The one who obeyed God to the utmost was Jesus, not Abraham. The one who considered God faithful in every single way, that was Jesus. Not Abraham, not Sarah. And the one through whom many sons and many daughters come, again, is not Abraham and Sarah, but it's Jesus. So, what I want to do is I want us to look at the faithfulness of God. I've just got three verses, or, yeah, three verses up here for us. The Lord our God is a faithful God. He will do all he says he will do. He did it for Abraham and Sarah. We can see that all through, uh, all through the, the Old Testament. The first passage I wanted to look at um, was Hosea. Hosea is a beautiful passage, and it also has a striking, um, a striking message, a scandalous message. That even though People on earth would not take infidelity in a marriage lightly. Nobody would take it lightly. And that is if it's committed by the other person, right? Nobody would take it lightly. But God made this promise and he used a human example to show the depths of his love for his people. And in this strange, I don't know if it's a poem or a song, I guess it could be either one, in chapter 2 of Hosea, he lays out the charges against Israel and he shows how they're guilty and He says, nevertheless, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you mine. And in 19 and 20 of chapter 2, he says, I will betroth you, Israel, to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and and justice, in love and compassion, and I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. Can you imagine 
uh, an idolatrous person hearing this for the first time and being convicted by the word and going, wait, this faithful God will really forgive me as much as I've done? Or a generation later after, after the exile who re- looked back on these words and saw the same promise and believed by the same faith? The faithfulness of God. He says in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in his sort of opening prayer, when he, talk, well, he talks about, to the Corinthians about how he's always praying for them, we see this in a bunch of his letters. He says about God, he will also keep you firm to the end. Not only did he call you, but he's going to keep you so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. He's going to bring it to pass. He's going to keep you firm. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians, um, in 1 Corinthians, he brings this at the beginning of the letter. In 1 Thessalonians, he talks to them at the end of the letter. And he says, may God himself, and he's expressing faith that God actually will, right? The God of peace sanctify you or make you holy through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who called you is faithful and he will accomplish it. Your sanctification, your justification, and he will bring you home. He will keep you firm to the end. So I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions as we are closing up. One, have you surrendered to the Lord unconditionally? Right? Abraham had to obey and he didn't know all the details. That's the only way we come to Christ. He offers us his clean, bright, brilliant robe for ours. Our old robe, which is nasty and filthy and corrupt. Barely covers us. Certainly doesn't cover our our nakedness before God. But we've got to give up all that we have. Have you surrendered unconditionally? I remember sharing the gospel with a lady, I don't know, it must have been three or four years ago. And she totally apprehended what I was saying. And she said this, it sounds like you're, like you're inviting me to a banquet in California, but you're not going to tell me what city until I get there. And I thought it was a really kind of a neat picture because the truth is God invites us to a wonderful relationship with him. But the road there is fraught with danger and complication and you don't get all the details ahead of time. She wasn't interested. Are we? Are we ready for total submission? Are you at home in the world or are you a stranger on the earth that you'll inherit? Again, we'll talk about this more next week. But you understand, right? Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The kingdom will be on earth one day and its citizens will rule the earth. Steward it as Adam and Eve should have done. But right now, we walk around like strangers and aliens. Are your thoughts centered on building a kingdom here? Maybe like the one that Abraham left behind in, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Or are you looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is God? Are you looking forward to that eternal city, that new Jerusalem? And finally, are you doing those ordinary things 
that God has prescribed in His Word and trusting Him to accomplish His will. You know, the other side of that is, is this idea that we have to be these great um, pillars of Christianity or we have this, you know, when, you're, when I was a kid, I used to always I'd come out of a movie theater, you know, seeing an action movie, and I'd imagine myself in the place of that person, right? Uh, and I know all you boys know what I'm talking about. All you men know what I'm talking about because you probably all went through the same thing. You see a movie, you read a book, you're the hero. When we read this book, there's only one hero. So if we have this idea, men or women, like we're going to be some great hero of the faith, then we've got it wrong. Jesus is the great hero of our faith. He wants people who are going to follow. Yes, there have been people who stuck out in all generations. There have been uh, great theologians. There have been great men and women of the faith that we don't even know their stories. But the only reason that anybody was ever a great person of the faith is because they put their faith in Jesus and they accounted themselves nothing. So, are you doing the ordinary things that God has prescribed and trusting Him to accomplish His will in you? And do you consider He who called you as faithful?